Today's scripture is Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. If you're following along in your house Bible, it's page 675. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure that of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Imagine that you were counseling a couple uh, whose marriage is crumbling and they come to you as their last hope to salvage this. And the wife starts and she says, he never shows affection. He doesn't do anything to help around the house. He hasn't taken me out on a date in years. And you're like, wow, okay, I see what's going on. But there's two sides to every story. So, sir, husband, what do you have to say? And, she sa- and he says, I don't know what you're complaining about. I don't know what she's... I'm so upset about I've never once cheated on her. I've never lied to her. I've never been out with my friends till 3 a.m. I've never so much as, as raised my voice to her or left the toilet seat up. So he's not been doing bad things and he's not been doing good things. What, what would you, whose side would you go with on this if you're the counselor sitting there? I think both sides are in agreement. He never does anything. He's not doing anything bad. He's not going out and cheating on her and lying and all that. And he's not doing anything good. Uh, what I'd say to that husband is, is what I might say to, to you this morning. Congrats on meeting the basic requirements of being a decent human being. But you've been called to so much more. You've been called to so much more. And not doing bad things. The more we've been called to is goodness. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're in a series this summer looking at the, the nine virtues, the, the fruit of the Spirit that's, that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. Today we're looking at goodness from Ephesians chapter 5. And this is a goodness, is a life of good deeds fueled by a good God. Our text in Ephesians 5 describes goodness first by examples of what it's not. He describes bad works are shown to, they're shown to be darkness. Then we see his word is calling us to step out of that into the light of goodness. Living a life of good works is what we're talking about today. And like the husband... So many of us, I think, measure the metrics of our spiritual life by the things we're avoiding rather than the things we're pursuing. 
I've talked to many in this room and many in my even community group and friends who are so focused on battling an internal uh, enemy of lust and pride and anger and unforgiveness or addictions or doubt and yes wage on that war must be fought be killing sin or sin will be killing you wage war against those internal sins but if these are our spiritual goals that we aspire to is as if Christianity is just about finally not saying or doing or thinking anything wrong as if the fullness of abundant life that God sent his son to bring to us is stop doing bad things. That's not it. It's not what we've been called to live. Merely avoiding the bad things. It's such a, a baseline here. And the analogies for this are endless. Think of uh, Michael Jordan. If his legacy on the court was that he never committed a turnover, no fouls, He played by the rules with no errors in his whole career, and he scored no points in the process. Would Coach Jackson be very happy with him? Would he have been a first-round draft pick? But he was playing flawlessly, right? No fouls, no, no points, yeah, but no turnovers, just playing by the rules. He's the perfect basketball player. No. No, the real Michael Jordan is, is known by many as, as the greatest. Uh, I'm not giving my opinion, but um, he, in his career, had 2,924 turnovers. That He gave the ball to the other team, the greatest. He missed more shots than he made, and he's the greatest by some. Uh, Or think of this, if you're at work at your job and you've got a a work performance review meeting and your boss sits you down and is like, look, nothing in your job description is being accomplished right now. And you're like, I see your point, boss, but I haven't sexually harassed anybody. I haven't stolen anything and I always put a cover sheet on all my TPS reports. But the boss says, yeah, 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 keep not doing the bad, okay? Keep that up. But the reason you're here is to do good work. The reason you're here is to do good work. This is Ephesians just a few chapters earlier in chapter 2. Let me read three verses from here that I really want to work with as well. This is really integral to, to my argument this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and through 10. And if you have your Bible, just flip a few pages back to chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Here it is, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He created us for good works. He's already prepared them before we even came on the scene. All we have to do is walk in them. Walk in them. And and, and this verbiage is also used in our text back in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, walk as children of light. Walk. It's a very just kind of natural verb, right? You just 
move, walk in the light, walk in good deeds. So goodness is not often this spectacular blast like, like the fireworks you might be setting off tomorrow. It's not reserved for just a couple important days a year. You know, that moment when you, you talk someone down off the edge of suicide, like those big, you gotta feel good, like you had, I did a good deed there. Goodness, walking in good works, is what God planned before the foundations of the world for your common, everyday, boring existence as a human being. That every day, these little opportunities for goodness that are constantly interrupting those big spectacular plans you're trying to make. That's me at least. I, I know I'm usually so preoccupied with greatness that I'm overlooking goodness. God puts these annoying inconveniences in my path, usually in the form of my children, that uh, are these little chances to touch a human being, a real life person with God's love. These little chances that I get. He's prepared them before the foundations of the world and he says, walk them out. Walk in it. Remember the story of, of the good Samaritan. This man is laying bloodied and beaten on the side of the road and the priest walks right on by. He didn't have time for good works. He's off to the temple to to minister. He's so important. He's got things to do. The priest was so busy with greatness while the good Samaritan was, was busy with goodness. Walking down the road of life We suddenly encounter, oh, it's a good work that God predestined me to do. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to do it. But we don't always have eyes to to see that, to be like, oh, there it is. There's the good work I'm supposed to do right now. I'm supposed to say this. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to pay for this. this, There's the good work. In Isaiah chapter 30, let me read one verse to you. God says, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, you'll hear this voice. This is the way. Walk in it. Walk in good works. Walk as a child of the light. This is the path. Walk in it. So you can't just sit there and look at the path and know the path. You have to get up off the couch and actually, in obedience, walk. I mean, it's good to know the way. You know, if God says, this is the way, that's good to know the way. That's orthodoxy, right thinking. But what's commanded is walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. This is orthopraxy, right practice, right doing, right living. This is goodness, walking in the way, in obedience. If you say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to obey. I'm just having trouble figuring out what that path is for my life. I'm at crossroads or, or I'm just out in the wilderness and there is no path. I'm forging my own way in this life. I don't know God's way. I'm ready to walk it, but, but I don't know it. I promise if you were to pick up your Bible and every day say, God, whatever you say, I will obey. Whatever path you show, I will walk it today. And I promise a a totally new world would open up to you, a new dimension of living. But if your heart sits back 
arms folded, and it's like, okay, I'll read this, and I'll see, uh, I'll decide what makes sense to incorporate into my busy life. You will never hear God's voice in the Bible. You'll, you'll just, you know, never seem to get anything out of it, someone might say. Listen to what um, Oswald Chambers wrote. Oh, this is so good. All God's revelations are sealed until they are opened to us by obedience. You will never get them open by philosophy or thinking. Immediately you obey, a flash of light comes. Obey God and the thing he shows you, and instantly the next thing is opened up. One reads tomes on the work of the Holy Spirit. This is big, academic, thick books on the work of the Holy Spirit. When five minutes of drastic obedience would make things clear as a sunbeam, we say, I suppose I shall understand these things someday. You can understand them now. It is not study that does it, but obedience. The tiniest fragment of obedience and heaven opens up and the profoundest truths of God are yours straight away. God will never reveal more truth about himself until you have obeyed what you already, what you know already. If you feel like you're in a season, you just haven't heard the clear voice of God in quite some time. It might be time to retrace your steps back to that last thing that he directed you to do, that last thing that he's commanded in his word and you excused your way out of it. If you find yourself saying, man, I'm, I don't know, I might need to find another church. I'm just not getting anything out of the sermons week after week. It could be that we're lousy preachers. It could be that you're walking in the darkness of disobedience all week. And then walking in the darkness, you expect to see the light of Christ. Goodness is spiritual sanity. This religion, nothing about this religion is going to make sense to you. And if you're not waking up every day with an intent to lead a life of good works in obedience to Jesus' commands. None of this will make a bit of sense. You won't get anything out of it. A man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer recognized that once you make obedience, something that may or may not happen after saving faith, once you've divorced those one from another, something which is just never done in the Bible, now a new question develops. When must obedience begin? When do you actually have to start obeying the commands of Jesus? Like, have to. At what point? The American church has answered, you don't. You don't. You, you should. I mean, do obey Jesus. That's the right thing to do. But you don't have to because Jesus kept the law for you. You're saved by Jesus' obedience, so you, we can go to heaven, though we live like hell. You just have to have mental faith that we're in the kingdom of light, though we walk in darkness. You just got to get the mental faith, and you'll be saved. Donald Trump, who 
you know, has quickly become my favorite sermon illustration. Uh, He was recently asked, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And he said, quote in full, not out of context, this is the entire quote, Jesus to me is somebody I can think about for security and confidence. Somebody I can revere in terms of bravery and in terms of courage and because I consider the Christian religion so important. Somebody I can totally rely on in my own mind. Jesus is a, a mental exercise, something you can and think about and kind of manipulate a positive sense of confidence and peace. I don't bring him up to point a finger at him, like that would just be so easy. I, I bring it up to point that finger that's so obvious, so easy. Let's point it right back, right back at your own chest and ask, are we really different? Do we really live as though today Jesus is a real man, a real God, a master with real commands on the things you're really going to do today? When, when do you actually need to start obeying the commands of Jesus? Everything he told us to do with our money, our prayer life, our sexual purity, anger, to evangelize the world. When do you actually have to deny yourself the things you love, pick up a cross, and obey? When? Today, today, you must do it today because faith is only real when it's joined with obedience. This is what James said in in James chapter two. Show me your faith without good deeds. I don't know, whatever it is, it's not saving faith. We've made the idea of faith into these mental hoops that we jump through, like you're on American Ninja Warrior, right? And if you complete this theological obstacle course of, uh, in, in your brain, okay, the virgin birth, got it, okay, substitutionary atonement, I gotta pass over the, the pit of Trinitarian orthodoxy, you win, you're saved, you did it. And the problem for some people is that they struggle and, and can't seem to complete the theological obstacle course in their mind might, they might just throw up their hands and leave church. Or they might not. They might stick around and, and just in shame not open up about their struggle with doubt. And they just hide thinking if, if I could just flip this mental faith switch. I could read the right book and with the right thoughts in it. Get them into my brain and the doubt would turn off. And I believe that Jesus died for me. But look at Jesus' first followers. Look at Peter. He didn't say, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, and then get up and leave his fishing nets on the beach. He first left his livelihood, his family, his identity, his security, and then walking in an act of obedience to the call of Jesus, following Jesus in just daily obedience, day in, day out, he was given the eyes of faith. 
to see Jesus for who he is until eventually, in Matthew 15, maybe a year later, he confesses, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've waited for. You're the Son of God. I see. This is just the nature of how darkness works. It always obscures Jesus. If you're walking in darkness and in disobedience, it always makes faith murky. It always blinds you. While you're living in disobedience, you'll you'll never see with the clear sight of faith a vision of Jesus enthroned in glory, clothed in beauty itself, and worthy of giving your all to. You say, I I can't obey because I, I can't believe first. I say, no, you can't believe because you won't obey. You can't see the light because you're afraid to leave the darkness. You've got to give huge credit to Diedrich Bonhoeffer um, for really this, a lot of this whole thing. And, and his, he has a chapter in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And let me give you a taste of it firsthand from what he said. If you believe, then take the first step. It leads to Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, take the first step all the same, for you are bidden to take it. No one wants to hear about your faith or unbelief. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. Then you will find yourself in the situation where faith becomes possible and where faith exists in the true sense of the word. This is my favorite sentence in this whole sermon. No one wants to hear about your faith or unbelief. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. I love it. Anyone can do this. No one here today is outside this invitation. Okay, Peter couldn't convert himself, but he could leave his nets. You cannot muster up faith, and you never will. But you can put yourself in a place where faith is a possibility. I'll give you a couple examples of that. The Bible says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Okay, so you can do that good work. You can stop saying yes to anything that happens on Sunday morning, maybe even Wednesday night, and you can say, well, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. It belongs to him because he said so. Any human can, by obedience to God, drive their car to church or walk to church and put themselves in a place where faith is possible. Faith becomes a possibility. Here's another example. Our text in in Ephesians 5 says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality or crude joking. Have nothing to do with it. Okay, so by obedience, you just cut out all shows, all movies, all websites that don't conform to God's desires. They've been laid out plainly. It's not difficult to discern which material is pleasing to God and which is displeasing to him. I don't know that anyone's really struggling with that. It's more the obedience of it. It's not difficult to discern which material is pleasing to God. He just says, set, your, set before your eyes no impurity, 
you know, non-negotiable. You know, we don't need excuses about, you know, watching this might cause some people to stumble in sin, but it doesn't affect me. I'm okay. No, you're not. You're not. God said that this stuff must not even be named among us Christians. Can't even name the shameful works of darkness So I don't care if you think it's a problem or if you think it's unrelated to your struggle with doubt. Just obey because it's what his word said to do. Because you want to put yourself in the realm where faith lives. And there's not one person here who can't avail themselves to faith. It's not beyond the reach of any one of us. If Now let's hedge against this if you are hearing okay pastor micah he says do the right thing be good enough and then you'll be saved goodness is the road to heaven okay then it's probably best that you forget everything you think i've said and let's go back to ephesians 2 8 that one verse ephesians 2 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Okay, so if you are saved by faith alone, without your own doing, good or bad, why obey his commands? You have to answer that. As a Christian, you must have some kind of an answer. Okay? Why obey his commands if it doesn't matter to whether you're saved or not? If we're not under the law anymore, then what are all these commands doing here in our text? Is, do we obey them because we think that they'll lead to a better, happier life? It's just the right thing to do? What about when they don't lead to a better, happier life? What about the day when a command of God is keeping you from happiness? What about the commands of Jesus that might lead you into suffering and into loss? And if you're already, hey, yeah, I'm just saved by faith. I don't have to do anything, Micah. Just tell me, though, why you need to obey Jesus. Why listen to anything I'm saying or the Bible says? What are all these commands doing here in this text about what I should and shouldn't do sexually down to something as trivial as crude joking God's got an opinion about. The point of goodness, the point of obedience is not for goodness sake and it's not to show God how much you deserve to be saved. The point of walking in the light of obedience is that it's hard to see in the dark. It's hard to find Jesus as beautiful and precious, excuse me, when you're blinded by sin. It's hard to see Jesus as precious when you are blinded by your sin. So let's, in our text, read the last four verses. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, 
and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He's saying step out of darkness and see the glory of Christ. Don't wait to see the glory of Christ and then step out of darkness. In the dark you can't see. Wake up, O sleeper, from this endless sleep of sin. Throw open the windows so Christ can shine on you. He says, arise from the dead. You're dead in sin, the Bible says. But Christ is calling. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. His voice can make you come alive. But if you don't get up in obedience and walk out of that dark tomb, you won't see Christ. He won't be real to you. He won't be beautiful to you. He won't be enough for you to sacrifice your life for. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Obeying won't save you, but I promise disobeying will exclude you from a place where life-changing faith is possible and available the kind of faith that drives an anchor into your chest that says, go ahead, take my stuff, take the world, take my family if you must, but as long as I have Jesus and he has me, I'm okay. We're walking on razor's edge right here with good works. On one side, you've got cheap grace, easy salvation. You know, Jesus forgives. In the end, my obedience doesn't really matter. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by his works. Cheap grace that costs nothing. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it's another word for damnation. Someone in here, maybe you, comes in on every Sunday and you feel shame that you've not lived up to what God expects, that you've really not given God hardly a thought this week. You've continued in sin, and week after week, you're assuring yourself, you're coming to communion, and you're assuring yourself, your sins are always forgiven. God doesn't care, because of something about Jesus on the cross. Wake up. God's word knows nothing of that cheap grace. He, and, and, and that will damn you if, you if your ears grow calloused and you can't hear that a true faith is shown by a real holiness, a real goodness, a walking in good works that he pre- prepared for us to walk in them. And the other side, we could fall off the razor's edge on the other side and you're like, okay, Mike, I get good works. Let's do this. I'm ready. If I'm, if I'm saved for good works, then I better start pulling my weight. I'm gonna make sure that I'm walking and doing everything right and dotting every T and dotting every I and crossing every T. And Bonhoeffer said, that's another word for damnation. Someone, maybe you, comes in every Sunday feeling shame that you've not measured up, hardly given God a thought this week, continued in sin, but this time, God, I'll do better. I'm on the brink of sorting it out. I'm ready to live sold out. Wake up, 
you as well. Wake up. The point of grace is that you don't get the credit. When God prepares the good works for you and then gives you the grace to do it. It's his work from start to finish. You're walking in his path by his grace and his goodness. Our goodness is rooted in God's goodness. The root of God's goodness produces the fruit of our goodness, our good works, our obedience. And so as we come to this table of communion, we remember, and it says in Romans 5, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, those that were not good. The work of Jesus, the work of the cross that we partake in is not based on our goodness. It causes our goodness. We're saved by grace through faith. And the way that grace brings that faith about is by giving us repentance to turn from the darkness, turn away from sin and disobedience. And then in a moment, and then now in this moment, as we come to the table, in confession of disobedience and repentance. Would you stand? And we'll take a moment here as we prepare our hearts to come to this table. Because we're walking to this sacrifice of Jesus, forgiveness of our sins on a razor's edge. And some could fall off into thinking, yeah, great, thank you, Jesus. And then go back to their life however they want to. And then others can fall off on saying, okay, I've measured up. I'm good. I can come to the table. Remember, Romans 5, while we were sinners, while we were not good, Christ died for the ungodly. So in this moment, what matters and how you walk this razor's edge is confession and repentance in this moment. Let the Holy Spirit speak and move and stir junk that's settled to the bottom, disobedience that you've just marinated in for so long. Let him, let him convict. And as he convicts, confess. And as you confess, repent. Turn from the dark. You can't see Jesus living in your darkness. Come Again, let me just read this. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Jesus, send your spirit to search our hearts. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Let me hear a voice from behind saying, this is the way. Walk in it. It's a good way. It's a good path that you've chosen for us. Thank you for showing us the way to live in obedience. I pray you'd create that obedience in so many hearts today that have walked in in disobedience. And I pray by the transformation of your spirit are walking out in obedience, in goodness. Do a work of repentance today where we are turning from darkness.
Let's continue in this moment, confession, repentance. And in a moment, Josiah will give the, the green light for those of you that have confessed and repented of all sin. Come to the table.